Well, great to see everybody here this morning. Again, if you're a visitor, if it's your first time here, or if, like earlier, you're back again, and as mum, it's great to see you. It really is great to have everybody here this morning. It's good to come together to worship God, to uh, encourage one another, and to study the Bible together, as we're going to do this morning. On your seat, you should have a bulletin, and on the other side of the bulletin is an outline of what I'm looking at today. All the verses that we're going to be looking at are there, and there's space for you if you want to make any notes or whatever, or you can just ignore that and listen. That's fine. Equally fine. Lots of you will know, uh, or some of you will know anyway, that Claire and I spent eight years working in Hereford, and our, our children were both born in Hereford. And we were there as part of a church planting team, helping uh, a team of people plant a new church there uh, on some council estates in the south of the city in Hereford. And, and the, the picture up there is the postcard, the, the, the picture postcard, the Hereford, Tourist, the Hereford Tourist Board picture of Hereford. That's the, the, that's the kind of pitch they want you to kind of uh, see and, and get excited about. It's a beautiful market town or market city down there in Herefordshire. Where we live was a little bit different. Some of you came to visit us there. It was, this was uh, the estate that we lived on called Newton Farm, which was to the south of the city. And we lived there for eight years. And we really believed, and we still believe, that God led us down there, that God took us down to Hereford. Uh, we were living in Wall's End. We moved down to Hereford. We sold our flat in Wall's End. We moved down to Hereford, and we invested our lives for those eight years down there in Hereford. We bought a house on one of the estates. We sent our kids to the local school. We immersed ourselves in the local life and culture to the best of our ability. And we pretty much saw ourselves as being there for indefinitely, for the long run, probably, probably for the rest of our lives. We were committed to doing that, if that was God's will for us. But during our last year there in Hereford, God really began to kind of unsettle us and through a whole number of ways prepare us to move and to move back up here. And he began to speak to us in a whole variety of different ways uh, about leaving Hereford and coming back up here to the northeast of England. And looking back at that time, there's a whole variety of different ways, different conversations, Bible verses, God speaking to us in all sorts of different ways. But there was a key conversation I had. It was a key moment when one of the leaders from another church in Hereford, we used to meet once a week, most of the city church leaders, and we'd pray together. And uh, one of the guys came to see me, and we were chatting about a whole number of things that were going on in different churches in the city and planning and, and so on. And we were talking about committing ourselves totally to what God had called us to do with our lives. And he challenged me that day, we sat in our, cons- in our conservatory in our house there, and he challenged me to buy a grave plot in Hereford, where I could be buried when I died. And doing this would demonstrate that I was committing myself to, for the rest of my life to Hereford. And you know what, when he said that, it terrified me. It absolutely freaked me, not the bit about dying, but I didn't want to be buried in Hereford. I realized that morning... I don't want to be buried here. And when I thought about where I really wanted to, bury, to, to be buried, I realized that I wanted to be buried back up here in the northeast of England. And so I made Claire promise me, look, if we live here the rest of our lives, promise me if you're still alive, you'll take me back up to Newcastle, to Wall's End. I want to be buried with my ancestors. And now in one sense, that's utterly ridiculous because it doesn't matter where my body is because the Bible says that if I've trusted in Jesus, and I have, then when I die, my body will rot in the ground and I will go, my spirit will go to be with Jesus. So it doesn't really matter where my body is, does it, really? It's kind of irrelevant. But nevertheless, I had this real desire to be buried back up here in the Northeast. And as I thought about why that was, I realized that it was partly because of the the great love and passion that I believe God has given me for this region. 
And it enabled me to see that although God had called us to be in Hereford, that we believed that was God's will for us to be there for that period of time, it wasn't where he wanted us to spend the rest of our lives. And the place that God had given us a passion and a heart for and a burden for was and is the northeast of England, particularly Newcastle. And so over that next year, that was just one thing, but over the next year, a whole number of different ways God spoke to us and eventually brought us back here. That was 11 years ago, which is frightening, isn't it, how quick the time goes. Maybe it hasn't seemed that quick for you guys, but uh, it, time goes by, I know. And I'm not sure where I'll actually end up being buried. But it will be somewhere around here. Maybe it'll be in War's End, I don't know. And even though it will only be my body, I won't be there because I believe I'll be with Jesus because I've put my faith and trust in him. It makes me happy in a kind of weird way. You might think I'm a little bit weird. That's fine. I am. But it makes me happy to know that I'm going to be buried in the Northeast where my grandparents and great-grandparents and back as far as I can trace were born and raised and died here in the Northeast. Now, you probably think I'm a little bit mad and a little bit weird. And if you're a visitor this morning, you probably think, what on earth have I, what is this guy? He's a little bit of a, a strange bloke. And, that, and that's probably true. But all I can say is that it, all I can say is how I feel. And I want to be buried here. And knowing that I'll be buried here makes me happy. What can I say? You can make your own judgment about what that means about me. But I wonder if you've ever thought about where you will be buried. Have you ever thought about where am I going to be buried? Where am I going to have my, where's my final resting place from a physical human point of view going to be? Maybe you're not sad and weird like me and you've never really given it much thought. I keep seeing adverts on the TV that tell me that once I'm 50, I can get a funeral plan for over 50s. And my children keep reminding me that that's only four years away, which is quite depressing. But it occurred to a man in the Bible called Jacob to think about where he was going to be buried. For Jacob, it really mattered where he would where his body would be placed when he died. It was really, really important to him. He wanted to be buried in the cave, the tomb that had been hewn out of a cave, where his father was buried and where his grandfather was buried. And that's because their tomb was in the land that God had promised to their descendants. It's what we know today as the land of Israel. And in fact, you can go and see where Jacob and his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham are buried. You can't see their bodies. That was 3,000 years ago. But you can see the caves, or you can see where the caves are. They're underneath now what is a mosque in a town called Hebron in, in Israel. And here's a picture for you. That's the mosque. It's the, Hebra, the Ibrahimi Mosque, or the, Abra, the Mosque of Abraham. And underneath there is a series of subterranean caverns, which is where uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were buried. It's the cave of uh, the patriarchs, it's called, or the cave of Machpelah, or the Ibrahimi Mosque. And you can go there and see that. And that's where these three men, grandfather, son, and, and grandson, were buried along with their wives. And the reason that Jacob wanted to be buried there was because God had promised that land to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to Jacob's descendants. That's why it's known as the promised land. God had appeared to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, and he'd promised him the land of Canaan. And he'd promised him that that land would belong to him and his descendants forever. But first, God, when God appeared to Abraham, he told him that his descendants would have to live in Egypt for 400 years. And that they would become slaves in Egypt. And eventually, after 400 years, God would release them. And of course, he does that through Moses. And they left Egypt and they went to the promised land and took possession of it. Last week, as we were uh, looking at the Bible last week, we got to the stage in the biblical account where Joseph had sent his brothers. To, uh, Joseph was in Egypt. He'd sent his brothers to go and get his dad. 
so that they could be reunited and his family could come and join him in Egypt. And this would be the beginning. This moment is the beginning of this 400-year period that God had spoken to Abraham about sometime earlier. And it would be this time when the, the descendants of Jacob or Israel, as he became known, the children of Israel would live there for 400 years. So we're going to read, uh, not quite as much as last week, but we're going to read uh, Genesis 46, verses 1 to 7, firstly. And then we're going to skip a little bit and then pick up the account. So if you haven't got a Bible, that's fine. You can just listen as I read it uh, to you this morning. But it's Genesis 46, and we're going to read 1 to 7. So Israel, or Jacob, but he had his name changed to Israel. So Israel set out with all that was his, and he reached Beersheba. And he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. They also took with him their livestock and the possessions they had acquired in Canaan. And Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt. He took with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons and his daughters and granddaughters, all his offspring. And then we get the account of all of that extended family. There's 70 of them in total. And then if we go down to verse 29. All those who went to Egypt with Jacob, those who were his direct descendants, not counting his sons' wives, numbered 66 persons. With the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, the members of Jacob's family which went to Egypt were 70 in all. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, Now I am ready to die since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers in his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were living in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds. They tend livestock and they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, What is your occupation? You should answer, Your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you'll be, able, then you'll be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians." Joseph went and told Pharaoh, My father and brothers with their flocks and herds and everything they own have come from the land of Canaan and are now in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked the brothers, What is your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They also said to him, We have come to live here a while because the famine is severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now please let your servants settle in Goshen. Pharaoh said to to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you, and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen, and if you know of any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, how old are you? Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130 my years have been, a few and have been few and difficult. They do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramesses, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their children. 
There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is used up. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep and goats, their cattle and donkeys. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, We cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes, we and our land as well? Buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. However, he did not buy the land of the priests because they received a regular allotment from Pharaoh and had food enough from the allotment Pharaoh gave them. That is why they they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, Now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you so you can plant the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four-fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your households and your children. You have saved our lives, they said. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. So Joseph established it as a law concerning land in Egypt, still in force today, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priests that did not become Pharaoh's. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I had found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on on the top of his staff. So Joseph had sent for his father Jacob, or Israel as he'd become known, God had changed his name. And although Jacob wanted to see Joseph, he didn't want to leave the land that God had promised to his ancestors, or sorry, to his descendants. And so he set out for Egypt, but he stopped at a special place, at the place that was special to his family, a place called Beersheba. It was special in terms of their relationship with God. It was where key things had happened. And we read this, so Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Jacob needed that reassurance from God that it was okay to leave the promised land and to go down to Egypt because it was in Egypt that his descendants would grow, they would have children and children and so on, and they would become this great nation. And then God would bring his descendants back to inherit the promised land 400 or so years later. But God would also bring uh, Jacob's body back to the promised land so he could be buried in that significant place. And so Jacob, reassured as he was by God's promises to him, he went down to Egypt, 
He was reunited with this long-lost son that he hadn't seen in over 20 years, and he lived the rest of his life there. And Genesis 46, 27 tells us this. Now, the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. They seemed to be exempted from this regime that uh, Joseph had over the rest of Egypt. And as we've read, Joseph continued to govern Egypt as second in command. He oversaw the famine relief, and he made Pharaoh even richer than he already was. Jacob lived another 17 years after moving from Canaan, the promised land, down to Egypt. And he died at the age of 147. But as he approached his death, the place of his burial began to really bother Jacob. Look at Genesis 46, 29. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Joseph putting his hand under his father's thigh was the way in which in that culture they would swear an oath. And Jacob asked Joseph to swear an oath that when he dies, he will take his body back to the promised land, back to the land of Canaan, and bury him there next to his father, Isaac, and his grandfather, Abraham. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. And, And as Joseph swore to bury Jacob back in the promised land, Jacob worshipped God. As he leaned on his staff, he worshipped God. And as he lived out the last frail few years of his life there in Egypt, he worshipped as he focused on God's promises. God had promised this promised land to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, or Israel as he'd become known, and to Israel's descendants. That, that's why it was the, called the land of Israel, still called Israel today. Jacob wanted to be right at the heart of God's promises. And because of that, Jacob and, and Joseph later as well, as, as we'll read in coming weeks, they both wanted to be buried back in the promised land. And they both wanted to be buried, they wanted to be right at the heart of God's promises to their family. And, and by being buried in the promised land, they were symbolizing that they were trusting in God's promises. They were believing in God's promises. Most of the promises were going to relate to their descendants, not directly to them, but they wanted to be right at the heart of God's promises. And they were symbolizing by wanting to be buried there that they wanted to put their trust, they wanted to align themselves with God's promises. And so we'll read on and we'll see what happens. So we're going to skip over into Genesis 49, verse 29. Genesis 49, verse 29, and we're going to read through to verse 14 of chapter 50. So... Genesis 49, verse 29. Then he gave them these instructions. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave of the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite along with the field. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Joseph threw himself upon his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. 
So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why the place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. So Jacob's sons did as he commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite along with the field. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. Jacob's 12 sons took their father's body back to the promised land and they buried him there and then they returned to Egypt. And so the children of Israel became known as, or the children of Jacob became known as the children of Israel. And they lived there in Egypt for the next 400 years or so until in 1447 BC they left Egypt, the Exodus as it was called, there's a whole book of the Bible called the Exodus. They left Egypt and they went, two million of us or so of them, all the way into what became known as the promised land of, of Israel. And they took possession of that land, the land that God had promised to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. And God had promised and God had delivered because God never breaks a promise that he makes. When God promises something, he delivers it. And he promised the land to, to Abraham, to Jacob, to Isaac And he delivered that promise. What God says, God will do. And we don't have time to look at it in detail today, but God's promises regarding the promised land were were much greater in scope than just the nation of Israel possessing it. God's promises also included the promise that one of Judah's descendants, Judah was one of the 12 sons, one of Judah's descendants would be a king that would reign forever. And Ryan's going to be looking at that a little bit next week, hopefully. God promised this special land to the nation of Israel. And he promised them a king, a king that would descend from Judah. And that king would reign in that land forever. And that king was none other than the Lord Jesus. Hundreds of years after this, Jesus would come. God would be born in the person of a human being, in the person of Jesus. And God would be born and become a human being there in Bethlehem. And Jesus would come. And Jesus was that king that had been promised to Jacob and to Judah and to the nation. And God promised them that all the nations of the world would one day come to Jerusalem and bow down as in front of the special king and worship him. And this special king was, as we said, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, who became a human being and was born into this family line of Judah. God's promises regarding the land and regarding this special king have been partly fulfilled. The nation of Israel took possession of the land of Israel in 1404 BC, 400 years later. And then 1,400 years later after that, Jesus was born there. But God's promises have only been partly fulfilled. The nation of Israel never fully possessed the land in the way that God said they would. And Jesus didn't come to rule and reign when when he came that first time. He came to die then for our sins. The Bible teaches that when Jesus came that first time, he died there on the cross to take the punishment for all the wrong things that you've done and that I've done, all your mess-ups, all your foul-ups, all those things that you've done that you know you shouldn't have done, all those things that you should have done but you haven't done. And Jesus died there in your place to take the punishment for that so that you can have a relationship with a God who loves you, 
who loved you so much that he gave himself for you. But Jesus didn't come to rule and reign, he came to die. But the Bible says he'll come again. And Jesus has promised to come again. And when he comes, he will rule and he will reign in Jerusalem. And all the nations then will come and bow before him. And there's many, many verses in the Bible which teaches this. But I just want to read one from a a section of Isaiah. If you've got a Bible, you can turn. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Isaiah 2, 1 to 5. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The Lord will go out from Zion or from Jerusalem, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The Lord Jesus here is prophesied and in many, many other passages in the Bible that he will come again and he will reign and he will rule in Jerusalem and all the nations will come and bow before him. The God of Jacob, this is still yet to happen. It's still future. It hasn't happened yet. And Jacob, way before this was prophesied, Jacob didn't have all the answers or all the information, but he knew that God had promised the land to his descendants. And he wanted to be right at the heart of God's promises. He wanted to align himself with those promises. And in one sense, it didn't matter to Jacob where he was buried. But in being buried back there in the promised land, he was symbolizing his belief and his trust in God's promises. He was demonstrating his belief in God, and he was demonstrating that he believed that God would keep his promises. That's what really is at the heart of Jacob saying, I want to be buried back there in the promised land. I want to, I'm symbolizing that I believe what God has promised to my descendants and ultimately being fulfilled in Jesus coming and dying on the cross and then coming again and ruling and reigning. So what has this got to do with us 3,800 years later after Jacob was buried in the promised land? What has this got to do with us this morning? Well, simply this, God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Look at Numbers 23, 19. It says this, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? When God makes a promise, he keeps it. What God has said he will do, God will do. He is incapable of breaking a promise. What he says he will do. And Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 1.18. And I've used the New Living Translation because it just makes it a bit easier to understand. For Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does not waver between yes and no. He is the one I preach to you. And as God's ultimate yes, he always does what he says. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ, our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. That's the song we've just sung, isn't it? God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. That's what we've just sung. All God's promises have been fulfilled in Jesus, in Christ, and God does what he says he will do. That's what that verse means. What God has promised, he will do. God's promises are yes, and we say amen to them. So what does this mean for us? Well, God hasn't promised us the promised land. 
That was a covenant he entered into with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their physical descendants. And we need to be really careful when we read the Bible that we don't read, particularly in the Old Testament, verses that promise things and then start applying them to our lives. We need to understand the context. And usually in the Old Testament, those promises are about Israel and their land and the covenant God entered into them. So always be careful to check the context before applying things to our lives. But what promises has he made to us then? What promises has he made to us today? Well, there are loads that we could look at, but I just want to focus on a few promises that God makes to us this morning and see how they apply to us today, 3,800 years later. Firstly, Jesus says these words, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. That is a promise. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Jesus promises that whoever comes to him for forgiveness and for eternal life, he will never reject. No matter how much of a mess they've made of their lives, no matter how terrible their lives may have been, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. If you come to Jesus today, confess that you're a sinner, which means you've not done what you should have done, means you've done stuff that you know you shouldn't have done. If you confess you're a sinner, that you've fallen short of God's perfect standard. And if you ask him to forgive you, if you turn away from that sinful lifestyle, and if you surrender your life to Jesus and make him your Lord, he will accept you. He promises to do that. Whoever comes to me, he says, I will never drive away. If you come to Jesus today, he he will not drive you away. He will accept you. He loves you. And when Jesus accepts us, we receive eternal life. Look at what what 1 John 2.25 says. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. This is what he promised us, eternal life. God doesn't promise us health and wealth or prosperity in this life. In fact, Jesus says in this life you'll have trouble. If you're a follower of Jesus, expect it to be difficult. But God does promise us these big promises, these huge promises that transform our lives, not just for now, but for all of eternity, forever. Acceptance, to be accepted by a God who is holy. Forgiveness, eternal life. And no matter how much of a mess we might have made of our lives, Jesus promises acceptance. He promises forgiveness and eternal life to all who will trust in him and surrender their lives to him. And as we go through life, you know, sometimes we find ourselves dealing with major life-threatening problems, don't we? Health problems. And maybe this morning you're struggling with a real health problem, which you know is is just this all-consuming cloud on your horizon. And even as we get older, more and more, we just become more and more aware of our mortality, don't we? I mentioned my over 50s uh, burial plan. You know, as you get older, you can't help but notice the fact, I'm not going to live forever. But we can face death and we can face eternity with the knowledge that Jesus has promised us eternal life. And he's promised that we'll be with him forever if we've trusted in him. And whether we live or whether we die, Jesus has promised to come back and take us all to be with him forever one day. Jesus said these words, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Jesus has promised to come back and take us who trusted in him to be with him forever. And he's promised to come and rule and reign as that king of kings that we read about earlier in Isaiah All the nations one day are going to come and bow before him and acknowledge him as King of kings and Lord of lords. The Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And whether you choose to bow and confess him as Lord now or not is your choice. But one day everybody will be forced to bow and confess Jesus as Lord. 
Peter writes these words in the Bible, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. God has promised a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. There'll be no more sin, no more pain, no more sickness, no more death. And so with our eyes focused on Jesus and our eyes focused on eternity and focused on our future hope, we can and we should, as followers of Jesus, live different lives here and now. Because God has promised to be with us by the power of his Holy Spirit living within us so that we'll never be alone. So we put our hope, we put our hope, we put our faith in those promises that God has made about the future. But we can also trust in the promises that God has made about being with us right now. Hebrews 13 says this, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. The promises that God has made to always be with us and always supply our daily needs, not all our wants, but all our daily needs, means that we should keep our lives free from the love of money and be content with what we have. So belief in the promises of God for eternity and for now should transform the way that we live here and now. Belief in the promises of God should transform how we handle our money and our finances. Paul says this, therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. He's he's referring here to these very promises about acceptance and forgiveness and eternal life, Jesus coming again, Jesus ruling and reigning, and no more death and sin, all of these promises. And so he says, because we have these promises, let's live lives that look radically different. God has promised us so much, says Paul, and so out of reverence, out of respect for God, we should get rid of everything in our lives that offends him, those things that are, contaminate our bodies. Now, Jacob had the great promises that God had given to him and to his father Isaac, to his grandfather Abraham, and he spent most of his life living without reference to those promises. Jacob spent most of his life wandering all over. He was a mess. He made a mess of his life. He wandered away from God. But as he approached death, he got his focus right. He wanted to make sure he was buried back in the land that was part of God's promises. His promises to him and to his descendants. He wanted to demonstrate that even in his death, that he was trusting in God and trusting in God's promises. The promise of the land, the promise of a nation that would come for him, and ultimately the promise of a great king who would descend from his son Judah. A king that would one day rule and reign in righteousness. A king that would die for him. A king that would die for uh, Jacob's sins and for your sins this morning. And that king, of course, was none other than the Lord Jesus. You know, Jacob often veered away. Jacob often went all over the place. Veered away from trusting in God and trusting in his promises. And as we've studied his life in Genesis, we've seen how Jacob often just got it spectacularly wrong. And we could so easily do the same, can't we? Despite all the promises that God makes to us, makes to those who ask Jesus to be their Lord and Savior, so often we find ourselves living as if those promises didn't exist. That's why in Hebrews 10.23, we read these words, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. 
Sometimes the challenges of life that we face can be overwhelming, and sometimes the temptations we face in life to wander away from God's will for our lives can also be so powerful. But here we're called to stay focused, to stick with it, to hold unswervingly to that hope that we profess. What is the hope that we profess? It's Jesus. He is our hope. It's the eternal life that he offers and he gives us. All God's promises in him are yes and amen. It's Jesus. It's eternal life. It's all those promises that are wrapped up and bound up in him. Why should we hold unswervingly to it? Because the one who has given us these promises is faithful. And he does what he says he will do. God does what he says he will do. We are unfaithful. But he is faithful. We so often don't do what we say we're going to do. But he always does. His promises are yes and amen. What God says, he will do. We're so often, aren't we, like that car, swerving all over the place from left to right as we drive along. But Jesus never wavers. He is faithful. He does what he says. And he will do what he's promised. As we come to the end this morning, Here's three questions for you to think about. Three questions just in the last few minutes this morning. What promises of God do I need to accept and believe in? Secondly, in what areas of your life are you currently living without reference to God's promises? Thirdly, what are we going to do about it? If you haven't accepted God's promises to trust and receive acceptance and forgiveness, then now's the time to do it. Now is the day to do it, right now. And if you have, but you're living without reference to those promises, your life isn't living in reference to all that God has promised you, what are you going to do about that today? It's what to think about, isn't it, this morning? Let's just bow our heads, just close our eyes for a few moments, just reflect on these questions. And I'm going to pray, and Daniel and the band are going to come and lead us in that song which we uh, learned earlier, Yes. And amen. Let's just bow our heads and just close our eyes and just for a few moments reflect on these questions. Father, we thank you that you have promised so much to us. We thank you for the promises right throughout the Bible. We thank you for that great promise of the Lord Jesus that whoever comes to him, he will accept, he will forgive. Thank you for the promise to come again. Lord Jesus, thank you that you've promised to, want to, to come once again. Thank you, Lord, that you've promised to rule and to reign. Thank you that you've promised to supply all our needs. Help us to live, to accept your promises and to live in accordance with them. We thank you that you are faithful. You are faithful, O oh God. Everything you promise, you will do. Help us to put our trust in you and in your promises, we pray, and to live in the light of those promises. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.